0: Future Generation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Elders past and present.
1: We can make a difference. We can fix this. Don't get overwhelmed. Working together, we can absolutely make a difference and turn people's lives around. Hello, and welcome to Twofold.
0: I'm Caroline Gurney, the CEO of Future Generation. And that was Jane Rowe, founder of the incredible Mirabelle Foundation, which celebrates its 25th anniversary this year. Mirabelle's been one of Future Generation's not-for-profit partners for years, since the beginning, really. And it's an organization that does amazing work supporting thousands of kids have been orphaned or abandoned by drug-addicted parents. Jane's won numerous awards, including the Prime Minister's Centenary Medal and an Order of Australia. But what interests me as much as her charity work is the story leading up to it. So, Jane, welcome. It's lovely to have you on our podcast. Lovely, thank you, Caroline. Right out of the gates, I'm going to ask you a question we ask all of our guests. But first, a bit of background. This podcast is called Twofold because at Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. We want to get the best investment returns for our shareholders, and we also want to get the best social outcomes for young Australians by investing in mental health and youth at risk. So, Jane, what are your two driving purposes in
1: life? One is a very simple one, which is actually for people to be kind, kinder to each other, kinder to the vulnerable kinder to the environment but in a sort of broader context and certainly with the work I do I really want to raise awareness about the young people that we work with I think there's not enough awareness about them and it's very much about lessening the stigma
0: so speaking of what you do let's let's talk about Mirabelle you founded the organization 25 years ago so what was what was the catalyst for starting about starting it
1: Uh, At that point, I'd been a drug and alcohol counsellor for many years. And where I was working, there were never enough beds for people in crisis. So when someone's in crisis, they need help now. So young people would come and see me every week. And it was a residential rehab for addiction. And they'd say, is there a bed yet? And I would have to say, "I'm, I'm really sorry. It's still a few weeks away. One particular day, four people that had been on the waiting list for a long time came to see me. Yet again, I said, I'm so sorry. There's not going to be a bed for some time. And they said, well, Jane, we're just um, sick of this. We're all going to go out tonight and get stoned. Uh, And I said, look, I can't tell you not to do that. But what I will say is that you must stay together as a group. Heroin fatalities were going through the roof at that point. And I said, those that are dying are those that are using in isolation. They all went out that night. They um, all four got stoned. They all passed out. Two woke up and two didn't. And the two who didn't were young mums. And I'd got to know their children in the previous weeks and months. And I went to the funeral of one of the young mothers and... Her six-year-old boy was at the funeral with um, emergency workers. Her biological family, drug use, so fragments of family. So his biological family were there, but they had no idea he even existed. His whole world was his mum. And as they lowered mum's coffin, this little boy went running up going, where are you putting my mummy? And he was taken away by um, emergency workers. And his future would have been, he would have been put in temporary care. It may have taken a year or two to find permanent care. He had lost all sense of hope and belonging. And I just thought at that point, this young kid is going to be far more likely to use drugs later to cover up his bereavement, his sadness. And we need to really step in now if we want to break the cycle of addiction. And there was no service or no awareness about what happens to the children of drug users or drug users that tragically and often needlessly die from overdose. Oh, Jane, I mean,
0: that it's incredibly tragic. Did you say he was 15? No, he was six. Six. Wow. You know, and... His whole life ahead of us ahead of him Let, let's just go back one step before we go more into this you know, to this subject. you know you're from England I'm from England we can hear it from our accents but you had you had a relatively privileged childhood there you know you attended a very posh boarding school the same one as Princess Anne I think um so how so how did you actually find? yourself in the field of drug and alcohol addiction, you know, half the world away. Like what, what was, what,
1: what, what kicked this off? Yes. I, I had a a very privileged life and, you know, left school, couldn't wait to get to London. And I uh, actually, you know, I was, my first job was working in the music industry and I just got into drugs. You know, it, it was, I say a a very different world then, you know, without perhaps the dangers of it, you know, being highlighted, but regardless, that's what I wanted. I was reckless, I wanted fun, I wanted to party, and um, I ended up being a heroin addict. And, you know, I was incredibly fortunate in as much as I had a very loving family, I had a very good education, but I was, I was a wild kid and got into a lot of trouble and ended up with a very serious addiction.
0: It's amazing that you can speak so candidly about it because there's there's still so much stigma around drug addiction. People picture this sort of stereotype when it comes to drug addicts and, and you really do not fit that in, in any way. So what do you wish in terms of getting more people to understand about addiction?
1: People don't choose addiction. It is, you know, no one wakes up and go, you know, oh, I want to be a, an, an addict. Um, they find themselves in the grips of addiction and then life becomes one big compromise to keep your lifeline going. And I think we're in a far more complicated time now. And as I said, you know, I had a lot of resources behind me. But if you look at young people now, and you're probably looking at third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation of unemployment, drug use, there's a real sense of hopelessness, let alone the emotional things that we're trying to keep at bay. You know, whether it's grief or trauma, some people use drugs to cope. There's an inner angst and it's about how they cope. And we The stereotype of an addict really doesn't exist. It's just that they're more apparent. I think there are many, many people that are behind various addictions that you wouldn't necessarily pick up. So turning back to Mirabel, what kind
0: of support do you give these children and their family units? We're all about
1: keeping, you know, the family together. And we, we don't say where a child should be placed, but without a doubt, if a grandparent or auntie or uncle is willing to take on the child, or actually more often than not, children, then it has to be the best option to keep the children together. So we support the, the carers, the grandparents, aunts and uncles, because to support a child, you have to support the most important person or people to them. And that is their family. And then we do a whole range of programs. You know, it all starts, I think, with a sense of belonging. We all need a sense of belonging. And children need to know that it wasn't their fault. I mean, time and time again, we we get young children who would have been the ones who found mum or dad, you know, overdosed. And they will go, it's my fault. You know, I should have taken care of mum or dad. So it's about saying to these children it wasn't your fault you know you were loved very much and then making them feel connected to the community because as you said at the you know on the start of this there's still a lot of stigma and shame and addiction children inherit that shame and stigma all that responsibility so you know when they you know they being you know replaced with their grandparents and they started a new school you know, one of their peers will say, oh, you know, why are you living with your grandmother? That child is too frightened to say mum died of an overdose. They know that they will be judged. There's so much shame. It's about bursting the secrets and allowing children to hold their head up high and feel that they weren't to blame. I really agree with you. The blame game is such a, it's a, it's a
0: really hard one to counteract as well From from what I understand. As you said, substance abuse is often a way for people to cope with, you know, mental health issues or stress. Right now, you know, times are really stressful. We've got, you know, gone through the global pandemic. Things are really tough economically. And you're actually at the coalface. So, so what are you seeing now at Mirabelle? What is
1: scaring you about this increasing trend? We are seeing um, children with. Far more complex mental health issues. If you look at pre COVID, we were working with a group of children, the majority of whom were feeling very socially isolated and very different. They were, you know, falling behind at school because their lives had been so transient up until that point, or they were so busy looking after younger siblings or mum and dad, they'd missed a lot of school. You then put COVID into the picture and these kids are getting more isolated. They're falling, you know, further behind at school. And it is very, very hard for them to sort of re-engage. And I think think the whole news, you know, everything looks so hopeless and out of one's control. And we have to put that hope back into a child's life um, and also we've got to assess them correctly. I think there's so many levels of mental trauma and grief and issues and we, we need to be really astute as to what a young person may be experiencing to actually be of the most help possible.
0: So when, when you're talking about the families, what kind of family dynamics... Um, that you see, you know, working with grandparents, aunts, uncles, and other kinship carers.
1: You know, what what are the ripple effects on their lives as well? Yeah, the ripple effects are far-reaching and long-lasting. First of all, there's the grief of losing a loved one or um, a loved one being, you know, perhaps totally incapacitated, you know, due to addiction, the shame, the secrets. You've got grandparents who were retired or about to retire and they they've now got children to support and then you've got the grief of you know the other siblings you know the aunts and uncles suddenly their own parent isn't able to sort of parent them because they're too busy with the grandchildren or perhaps you know the sibling that got all the attention during their life still is taking up all that attention so it can cause a lot of resentment And other forms of isolation when families are put in this situation. I mean, we've had situations where, you know, half the family have said, no, you know, relinquish these children into care. And other members of the family have said, no, you know, we we can't do that. So it is absolutely broad. Although I would, you know, like to also highlight there are, you know, families that absolutely navigate this and come out the other end, and, and they really are, you know, the true heroes of the peace. Let's talk
0: about the support for kids and their families. You know, what, what does the government do to support them?
1: Very little. A kinship carer, and it, and it does vary state to state, but a kinship carer, which is an, ex- kinship carer is an extended um, family member that takes on the care of the children, they are going to get minimal support. If it goes through the court system, which means a child be placed in care before coming to live with the um, the relative, they, they may get some support. But there is absolute minimal support um, financially, emotionally for these families. And, and again, I think the world's changed so much. So we're actually, you know, it, they're really antiquated laws that perhaps work decades and decades ago when there wasn't drug use and there weren't mental health issues and you know that there that there were more resources but kinship care has overtaken foster care so there is a whole silent community of grandparents raising their grandchildren with minimal help and the worry of what's going to happen when they're no longer able to take care of the children. And it, to me it is the most compassionate and economic investment for us to support and invest these families. These kids are our next generation. Jane just to, just
0: to be clear, from my understanding they in terms of support from the government they get even less if they take children into their care straight away, rather than letting, you know, their grandchildren or second family go first into state care, which to me sounds absolutely crazy. Is this a potential area of advocacy for Mirabelle? You know, could, can you close that loop?
1: Advocacy is a big role for Mirabelle and we work with other organisations. And I think the only way you bring about change is the louder the voice. The more of us that are able to talk about this and and bring it into the radar and disrupt the norm, maybe, is the only way we're going to bring about this change. You can't be silent and hope that things are going to change.
0: Just to explain to me, if a child is left, you know, being orphaned or abandoned, you know, because because of their parents in terms of you know issues that they've gone through that child has to go into state care and therefore the, pe- the people, the grandparents that look after that child will get, you know, more government support. But if the family take that child in immediately, there's very little
1: government support. Yes. Look, it's fairly complex, but yes, a, a simple way to sort of illustrate it would be that, and this has happened, you know, again, a lot, you know, a, uh, a, uh, Grandparent gets a knock on the door. There's the police with their two, three, four grandchildren. The grandparent has told the tragic news that their daughter died from an overdose. And it, you know, will you take the children? Well, obviously, yes. I mean, that's what's going to happen. But should they say, no, I can't, and the children are then, you know, sort of separated, put in temporary care, and it goes through the courts? and then the grandparent may go to the court and be asked and put their hand up and it's gone through the whole system, then they will get some support.
0: How long is that process? How long would it normally take?
1: I don't know whether I can give a norm on that, but I would say we're talking of a long process.
0: So you have lived and breathed Mirabelle for 25 years. and. I am always fascinated by people who dedicate their lives to something so absolutely selfless and I'm incredibly lucky in my in my job I get to meet quite a few of these people and of course you are one of those so what do you think it is that makes some people focus on the good of society at the cost of personal wealth
1: or individual success? It's something that um I'm totally unaware of, to be honest. I, I think wealth comes in many forms. I think richness comes in, in many forms. And for me, you know, working with people was the only thing that was um, going to make my heart sing, really. I, I, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. And so I, I don't think it's, um I don't think it's a selfless, I mean, it's very flattering what you say, but I, I'm not sure that it's a, a selfless choice. We just look at something and go, that's where I want to be. That's what really puts the fire in my belly. And our lives are richer because our work gives us real purpose.
0: So Jane, I've known you nearly 20 years and I've always been amazed at the work you do, but was it your family? You know, were they compassionate and empathetic when you went through, you know, what you did. Do you think that's been sort of a bedrock of how you've then wanted to treat other young people?
1: Yes, I think we learn, you know, kids aren't, we, you know, we learn through our environment and through osmosis. And yes, my parents were incredibly kind and compassionate and non-judgmental. So that just becomes the norm for you. That, that is sort of, that's your reality. And, you know, I was always told as a child, I mean, my mother always just said, just be kind, be kind to one another. So I think that was something that definitely I I completely um, absorbed and just became the norm for me. We've talked about, you
0: know, the stigma and the shame around addiction. And how does that impact the lives of Mirabelle kids? You know, are other children and their parents, you know, judgmental about their situation?
1: Yeah, the, the, the shame and stigma is still incredibly apparent. You know, one of the first things we do when, you know, children come to Mirabel is we, um, we do a lot of activities, which you know because you've been involved in those because we have volunteers that help with that. So the uh, first thing we do would be what we call a big day out which is a child's first introduction to Mirabella. And we try and take them somewhere really fun. And there could be up to 90 children. And when they go home that night, the grandparents will ring us the next day and they will say they were a different child on the way home because they said, Nan, you're not going to believe this. Every other child there is the same as me. They're all living you know, with a nan or or an auntie, and their mum or dad, you know, died or in prison. And it is that immediate hit of being able to be truthful with one another. It lifts that stigma. And I think, you know, they go to school, and as I mentioned before, they don't want to talk about the circumstance of, you know, why they're with the grandparents. So, as a community, we really need to change the way we, we look at drugs and addiction because I think we need to look at the whole big picture for things to change. And shame, blame, stigma really holds children, young people back. Hey, it holds adults back. So it's very, very critical that part of the work that Mirabel does, even though it's quite subtle in a way, is constantly saying to the kids, you are not to blame. You've done nothing wrong. Mum or dad did nothing wrong. That was how they coped with their mental health or depression. And you are really empowered young people. And you are part of this community. The community is not judging you.
0: I think it's just like, you know, your parents saying being kind to one another. And I've heard you talk about that sense of love and belonging are incredibly critical to know to kids and I am a huge believer in that and I I kind I see so many of today's problems seems to be it seems to be caused by that breakdown of the community like I, I just remember being brought up in in a community you know you have aunts uncles neighbors involved in kids lives and families now are far more self-contained you know what what's your view on this how can we get that sense of community back
1: i don't know how we get it back because everyone you know people are working two jobs families are working again it's so simplistic isn't it it's kind of going back to kindness it's smiling at your neighbor smiling at you know people down the street but community is essential and it doesn't have to be a big community it needs to be connection. I mean, they say that a, a child or a young person can just have one person in their life and that can make the difference. One positive interreaction person. It's about connection. I think the breakdown of the community really accounts for a lot of, you know, not only where the Mirabel kids are at, but where everyone that sort of mental health that we're very disengaged and we're humans and we're a pack animal and we need one another. And it doesn't matter what age we are. We need that. And and I think loneliness, whether it's emotional, social, you know, is really prevalent these days. And, and that's a lot to do with a big picture of what's going on, you know, globally or on our street corner. Yeah. And I think all of us are so
0: aware of that now, and it's a conversation that that we're having a lot more than we used to. You're the founder and obviously the CEO of Mirabelle, and your name is very is really synonymous with the organisation. Um, that obviously has benefits, but of course it brings in that sort of key person risk. How are you how are you navigating that? What what are you what are you telling your you know your supporters and um, you know, so many people that support you?
1: Well, I'm incredibly fortunate that a, a lot of my team, I, I've got 36 amazing people working with me through Victoria New South Wales. And I think the average time that they've been working with Mirabel is 14, 15 years. I've got two staff that um, have been with me that entire time since I started Mirabel from home. So I, I think, you know, often I feel quite fraudulent that I get all the accolades about Mirabel, but actually it's the people working at Mirabel that are doing the most amazing work. And they have the culture and they have the history and they have the values. So yes, although there is sometimes people feel a bit of a risk, you know, the founders been there 25 years, what happens to Mirabel afterwards? We have definitely have an amazing board. We have strategic plans. We've got every scenario written in from contingency plans you know, to when I go. And I actually think Mirabel will evolve and, and it will get stronger and, and be better. And there will be younger people running it that are really switched on to the environment. So I, I personally have absolutely no concern about the future of Mirabel. I don't think my board has any concerns. And um, hopefully, you know, when donors ask and we talk about it or they see our strategic plan, they feel assured as well.
0: You're celebrating 25 years this year in terms of your anniversary for Mirabel. Along the way, I know you've had a lot of challenging times. Can Can you tell me
1: about one of those? I don't know if there's one specific challenging time, but I would say most of the challenges are about not growing too fast and not being reactive. I think often there's been pressure on us to grow, um, to get bigger, and I really had to hold my ground not to, because I don't believe you can be everything to everyone I think in this field, collaboration is the key. There are so many organizations doing wonderful work that we can work together with. So I would say the most challenging time for me has been saying, no, we're, we're not going to other states or or we're not getting bigger. Um, this is who we are. and uh, What I want to do is make, a real difference to as many children as we can, which at this point has been thousands as opposed to diluting what we do. And I guess that's, you know, keeping the culture and the values of the organisation true to how they were set up. It's a very
0: challenging time at the the moment. You know, it's a very tough environment, um, especially for not for profit. How are you coping and, and what do you need?
1: Yeah, it is a really tough landscape at the moment. We, well, we need the goodwill, we need the advocacy, we need the volunteers, we need all of that and ongoing so. But we need resources and we need donations. You know, the, the truth is drug overdose is not going down. We are still getting as many children referred to Mirabel as we were years ago. It doesn't make the papers as much but it is still happening. So for me, and, and that you know, perhaps goes back to your last question about challenges, it's having the optimism that we are going to have enough resources to actually work with all the kids that are coming to us. And we said 25 years ago, we will never turn a child away. And we haven't, and I'm determined not to, and that's from... You know, my earlier years working when I saw people in crisis and they're not being help available. But I think that is, in this environment, it's very challenging. I think there's a lot more organizations addressing the mental health things in recent years. So there's less money to go around more organizations. And I preach, you know, belonging and hope. My two catch cries, and I've got to um apply that to Mirabel and feel hopeful. And finally, I was in
0: an emergency in a, in a regional hospital, um, quite recently, and I noticed there were so many young people with you know drug addiction, primarily ice, I believe. Are you seeing that that increase a lot?
1: Yes, we are. Um, the the whole. You know what drugs are being used. I've been working in this sector for thirty-five years. It's a very, it's very, very different. I think there are, you know, drugs now that, born out of society where people just want to be in an altered reality. So, you know, there are drugs there that are cheap, nasty, bring on psychosis. So, you know, what we're seeing a lot more is children being removed from the home due to violence, due to abuse. And um, in many cases, it's, you know, long-term psychosis. You know, people aren't necessarily recovering emotionally. It's incredibly tragic, but
0: I think the work that you and and Mirabelle and all your team are doing is really inspiring. I can't thank you enough for the work you do. And Thank you very much. It's been a
1: pleasure to have you on our podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure too. And I can't thank you enough for everything that you do to help us. And, I, you know, I just want to say to people, you know, we can make a difference. We can fix this. Don't get overwhelmed. You know, working together, we can absolutely make a difference and turn people's lives around. Thank you. Thank you very much, Shane. Pleasure. We
0: hope you to enjoyed today's episode. For those that are interested in the future generation, we are Australia's first listed investment companies to provide investment and social returns. We offer a unique opportunity for shareholders to invest with leading Australian global fund managers while supporting high-impact, youth-focused, not-for-profit organisations. Today, the companies have more than 1 billion in assets, managed by over 30 leading Australian and global fund managers. These fund managers generously manage our funds pro bono and don't charge management or performance fee. This then allows us to give 1% of our net tangible assets each year to carefully selected not-for-profit organisations. So far, the future generation companies have given 65.2 million, making us Australia's top 30 corporate philanthropists. This has been made possible through the expertise and generosity of the Future Generation pro bono fund managers, service providers, board directors and investment committee members, all of whom waive their usual professional fees. For more information about Future Generation, please go to www.futuregeninvest.com.au.